0: How many of you have ever heard of a man named George Parker? The name may not be familiar, but you probably have used a a common phrase that comes from his story. George Parker was one of the most audacious con men in American history. He lived from 1870 to 1930 and... And he made his living selling New York City's public landmarks to unwary tourists. His favorite object of sale was the Brooklyn Bridge, which he was told to have sold twice a week to tourists. It's a true story. He would convince his buyers that they could make a fortune by controlling access to the road. More than once, police had to remove the buyers from the bridge as they tried to erect toll barriers on the Brooklyn Bridge. Other public landmarks he sold included Madison Square Garden, the original one, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, Grant's Tomb. I don't know who would want that, but that's a whole other story. The Statue of Liberty. Whenever he sold Grant's tomb, he would often pose as the general's grandson. He set up a fake office to handle his real estate swindles. He produced impressive forged documents to prove that he was the legal owner of whatever property he was selling. He was convicted three times of fraud. And after his third conviction on December 17, 1928 he was sent to prison for life. He spent the last eight years of his life behind bars and is remembered as one of the most successful, if you can use that term, con men in the history of the United States. And his exploits gave rise to the phrase, and if you believe that, I've got a bridge in Brooklyn I will sell you. And as Paul Harvey said, and that's the rest of the story. While it's humorous, There's an even bigger con game going on and has been going on since the beginning of time with with an even larger object bogus men are trying to claim ownership of. And people buy it. They buy the the leadership. And it's the, the kingdoms of the earth. The first attempt was Satan himself and the third of the angels bought into his con game. And he was cast out of heaven. Others have followed. You could probably add to this this list. Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, Alexander the Great, Rome's emperors, Attila the Hun, Napoleon. More recently, Stalin and Hitler have all tried to lay claim to the world. World domination. Millions have followed them into into death or even into the the dust pile of history. And in the future, the Bible tells us that there will come the most powerful ruler of all claiming world domination, and that will be the Antichrist, as we're going to see in the book of Revelation as we move along. And all of these men had have one thing in common. They failed. There's only one individual who has the right, the power, the authority to rule the earth, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. No one else is worthy. No one else is able. Everyone else is a con man or an imposter, regardless of of what they claim. And one day, the Lord Jesus Christ will come and will claim what is rightfully his from the usurpers, and he will call all rebels into account. That's exactly what Paul is talking about. In the book of Acts when he says God has appointed a day in which he will judge. That is the day in which Christ, the rightful ruler of all creation, will call all human beings and all fallen angels and Satan and everyone to account. And the books will be opened and reconciliation will take place. Revelation 5, John sees a vision of this, this claim, this claim upon the earth. After seeing this, this awesome sight of the throne room, heaven's inhabitants worshiping, John looks, it says, and he, he sees something extraordinary. Jesse did the recitation this morning, somewhere back in at the beginning of the book of Revelation, he actually memorized chapter 4 and chapter 5. And with all of that work, I said, you need to present that to us. So he did this morning, chapter 5. If you put two of those together, it's one vision, but chapter 5 begins a new scene. Look at chapter 5 of Revelation, verse 1. He says, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll. Now that would immediately capture your attention, it should what john wants us to wants to happen i mean think about this as the ceaseless choir sings you see god and he takes up a scroll in his right hand and then john sees the lamb he takes the title deed of the earth and he lays claim to the earth and its inhabitants and then what follows in the rest of revelation is the lamb unfurling the scroll seal after seal after seal. It's an awesome vision. And as awesome as the vision of the throne room is, you might think that is the call to worship for this scene in chapter 5. It's like the the, the prelude to the vision of the Lamb. The vision of His worth, the vision of His worship, and the vision of His war will dom- dominate the rest of of Revelation. So if you're not there, open to Revelation chapter five, and we're going to look at these fourteen breathtaking verses, and I'll show you how how you can you can outline it. This is the vision of Christ's right to creation's deed. It's the vision of the Lamb and the scroll. That's what you'll typically find in your Bible. The vision of the Lamb and the scroll, which is exactly what it is. But but the title I've given, or the theme that I've given, is really what's taking place. The vision of Christ's right to creation's deed. And he takes that from the Father on the throne. And that sets up the rest of the the book of Revelation. In verse 1, you see a seven-sealed scroll. Verses 2 through 4. You, you hear this mighty or strong angel summons who is worthy. Then in verse 5, you find a redeemed elder's proclamation pointing to the Lamb, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 6 and 7, you find the title deeds transfer. That's where the Lamb goes and takes the, the scroll from the Father on the throne. And then at the, the end, the, the major dominant scene in the vision is the Lamb's worship by all of creation. It starts with those immediately around the throne and then moves in concentric circles to the angels and then to all of creation. Let's look at the very first scene here, the thing that John points out to us. It's the seven sealed scroll. He says in verse one, and I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. Now all of that detail is there for a specific reason. And John shows us the scroll's authority and the scroll's importance. The first thing he says is it's, it's held by the one on the throne. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. It's held in his right hand. It's both signify authority. When a king makes a royal decree, he does it from his throne. You'll even see scenes in in movies or or in your mind, in a book. The the, the monarch will come and he will will take the throne. He'll be seated on the throne. It holds official significance. If you appeared before the king on the throne, that was a a big deal. Either a big honor or something really bad was going to, to take place. It means whatever is read from the throne, and in this case the scroll, has the full weight of the throne behind it, has the full weight of the monarchy, the full weight of the country. In this case, the full weight of the creator of the entire universe. I'm sure you've heard the phrase before, this is my right hand man, or he's my right hand. Well, that phrase comes from the position of privilege that it was at the right hand of a ruler, historically. Now, don't take offense, you lefties in here, because if you're a boxer or a pitcher, you'll do really, really well. But most of us are right-handed. And uh, most people in history are right-handed. And because of that, a person was placed to the right side of the king because and became the king's confidant because it was natural to turn to whichever side that you're on, turn in that direction. So it became a phrase because all of the confidants were were placed at the right hand. The king would lean over and he would whisper something in his ear and then he would give declaration. In the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Acts 5.31 echoes this, the position or place of exalted honor is held by the Lord Jesus Christ. And he that's Christ is the one whom God exalted to the right hand as a prince and a savior and grants repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. This is in the sermon that Stephen gave to to the elders there, the Jews, when he was rebuking them. The scroll is in the right hand of the outstretched arm of God. It's It's to draw attention. And it's on the same side of the throne as the Lord Jesus Christ, the one he sits. And not only do you find authority in what John says, there's also the scroll's importance. Notice what it says, a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Romans sealed their official and important documents with with a wax seal. They they heated the wax. They dripped it on the fold of a document, and so the, the wax would, would cover the fold, so it wouldn't able it wasn't it was unable to be to be opened. And that would signify its importance. If you, you sealed something of value, you sealed something of, of official importance. There are various contracts that they did this with. They, not just the Romans, but people in the ancient world. The Jews did it as well. Marriage covenants, lease agreements. Deeds to property, wills. Similar to we have a legal system today. We have a notary. We have some witness that's there. And then there's there's some way to, to keep the document from being tampered with. If you sign a legal contract, you have to initial every page to make sure that a page isn't slipped in there. Now, this says on the front of the scroll was a seal. And the document's contents was on the back. Very typical of what you would see inside the scroll that was unreadable from the outside. It contained all the specific terms and conditions of the contract, but on the the front you would have whatever the title was. This is the deed to the property in Galilee, and on the back you would have a summary of what was inside, so you could you could store it and you go hmm. Wonder what this was. I can't break the seal to read it. You just turn it over on the back, and you would you would see the summary that was there. And that's exactly what John describes here. A very important document like a will or a deed would be sealed several times, as I said, right on the edge of the folds. And when you think scroll, don't think round. Think you know think uh, think flat. You know flattened like this. Still kind of a scroll. But it's not a book. And then in each fold, there's a, there's a seal. And if the seal was broken before its time or an unapproved party, by an unapproved party, then the document could be contested and was suspect. The Jews required a minimum of three witnesses present and at least three separate seals on very important documents. And the more important the contents, the more witnesses, and the more seals were required. You can see an example of this in Jeremiah 32, where Jeremiah was instructed to buy a field. For 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got the witnesses, and weighed the money on the scales. And then I sealed the deed of purchase, containing the terms and the conditions and the open copy. And I gave the, the deed of purchase to Baruch in the presence here's the witness in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the in the court guard now I want you to notice what John sees is a very important document it has the authority of the throne the king himself has it it's sealed 7 times it's a deed it's very important and as you're going to see in the rest of the, of the chapter, all of creation is called to witness this deed. This is a massively important document. It's the title deed to the earth. Look at what else John says he sees in, in verse 2. Then I saw, turning the page, a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and loose the seals he has the angel's identity he's called the mighty angel he the angel asks the request who is who is worthy the angel the angel's identity i want you to notice that this is not one of the four cherubim or or the 24 elders this is a this is a brand new angel we haven't heard from from him before It's someone else in the throne room as well, and he's described as a strong or mighty angel. This is an archangel. The archangels were the court officials. I mean, this is an official uh, court hearing. The king's on the throne with a very important seal. It's in his right hand, and the angel is standing like the court official, calling for who has right to this deed. Who is worthy to come and take this and open the seals? The archangels do that. They, they reveal and explain God's significant announcements. They've done that throughout throughout history. Daniel eight sixteen. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand, and behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man, and I heard the voice of a man. He called out and said, Gabriel, give this man the understanding of the vision. Luke 1.19, the angel said to him, I'm Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. The name Gabriel means strength of God. It's quite likely... Because he's not named, I believe it's Gabriel, but I say quite likely because he's not specifically named. This is quite likely Gabriel, clearly an archangel, standing in the presence of God. He's called forward to announce a significant event, which is what they do. And there's none more significant than than this one. The angels request He proclaims a request with a loud voice. He shouts it throughout heaven. It echoes, as you're going to see, through eternity. The angel calls out into heaven and all creation who is worthy to open the scroll. This is not so much a who wants to step up and take a try. This is a who has right to open this deed. And, of course, if you have right. To open this deed, then there's worth that goes along with your life. This is an official request for the rightful owner to step forward. It's an official proceeding to break open the scroll that it would begin with a request, a legal step, a legal right to step forward, and and the one who could do that would do so, and then the witnesses would be called. Is this the one? Is they would figure out is this the person who has who has the right you might think of it like a like a an executor reading a will in a lawyer's office, see, and there's 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 no one listed in the will, and he calls out for any relative who could lay claim to the inheritance. Now get this: God from the throne takes up a scroll, declaring it's time. The angel requests the person come forward and present his credentials so to transfer. The transfer can take place and the document be read. And when he does this, creation is silent. You have the angel's identity. You have the angel's request, who is worthy. And then you have silence in the universe. No one, in verse 3, in heaven or under the earth, on the earth, or under the earth, was able to open the scroll and look on it. No one has the right to step forward. It's a threefold statement. In heaven, on earth, and under the earth. It's kind of like, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It means all of you. When this statement's made in the Bible, it's 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 a common expression for all of the created universe. And he goes through and says, no one was found worthy. There's none in heaven, not angels or saints, which would include Moses or the prophets. Adam doesn't step forward. Noah doesn't step forward. Enoch, who walked with God and didn't die, remains silent. Even Abraham, the father of faith, doesn't make a move. None in heaven, none on the earth. There's none still living. John's an apostle. Not any of the apostles. No king. No man, woman, boy, or girl. None on the earth and none under the earth. No one who has died. No one in Hades. No demon. Not even Satan himself. Nothing. There's silence. And John's response is is anguish. Look at verse 4. So I wept much. And he tells us why, because no one was found worthy to key, to open and read the scroll or to look on it. Now John's not weeping because he really wanted to know what was in the scroll and now he's not going to be able to see. That's not why John is is weeping. He's weeping because he knew what the scroll was. He knew it was a deed. And if it wasn't claimed by Christ, if no one was found worthy, then that meant the curse would remain. That meant the earth would remain in travail. That meant the infection of the fall would remain. The kingdom would not come. Israel would not have the land and the promises that God made. The new heavens and the new earth wouldn't come. I mean, John understands. He's weeping because of all of those reasons. Until the scroll is open, none of that can take place. And so John weeps. And at this dramatic moment, just whenever it looks like all hope is lost, silence is is broken by one of the elders that's that's there. Look at verse 5. But one of the elders said to me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, has prevailed to open the scroll or so that he can open the scroll and to loose its its seven seals. He says, stop weeping. Behold, the elder proclaims the deed owners. This is one of the 24 elders that was there. And he gives the the deed holders identity. He's the line of Judah. He's the root of David. He talks about his victory, conquered, and then his right. He is able. The I want you to notice it's one of the elders who who points to, to mankind's hope and heaven's king. Not one of the angels. It's one who was clothed that we saw in the first part of the vision in white garments of Christ's righteousness upon who is wearing a victor's crown himself. That's the one. He knows who is worthy. He's tasted the victory through him. And if you've been washed clean by the blood of Christ, you know who is worthy as well, who has the right. The elder identifies him with two titles. The two titles are rooted in specific promises of God. It's the lion. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. The seed that will come, tracking through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob pronounces a blessing upon Judah. The very end of, of Genesis. And the promise was made while they were still in Egypt. They don't have... The promise of the of the land yet they they came out of Egypt into uh, they came out of Canaan into Egypt and if you remember Jacob's bones are even carried there bondage was going to come and then God was going to lead an Exodus that Clay outlined for us so well last Sunday night from the Transfiguration there's going to be an Exodus that's going to come but not just the land of Canaan, deliverance from sin's bondage and an exodus into the kingdom of heaven. And, and this is declared through Judah. Genesis 49, verses 1 through 12, Jacob called his, his sons and they gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen Old sons of Jacob, listen to your father. And he begins to bless them. And then I've I've cut Judah in here for you rather than go through all of them. Verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub from the prey. My son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouches as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine, his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes, his eyes are darker than wine, his teeth whiter than, than milk. This promise that will come through Judah, the elder proclaims, Behold, he's here. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. But that's not all he says. He also says the root of David. Echoing Isaiah, chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and the, the branch of his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And if you read the book of Isaiah, you'll see whenever he reigns, in that day the root of Jesse, in verse 10, shall stand as a signal for all peoples of of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. God made a promise to David that his throne would have no end. And it would have no end because one day the Messiah would set upon that throne. Isaiah describes this descendant of David who will reign and will compel the wicked to bow before his authority. He will be the offspring of David. But I want you to notice this says he's the root of David, The Messiah will come from David's line. He'll be David's son, but he'll also be David's Lord. He'll be the root, not just the fruit. That's who the angel identifies. But he says more. Look at verse 5. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has conquered, he has prevailed. Now, in the original language, that's in... The emphatic position. It's pulled to the front of the sentence. The victorious one, the one who has conquered the lion of Judah, the root of David. He is overcome so that he can open the scroll. Jesus is the promised seed and the prophesied King of David, but he's also the victorious Savior. That's what gives him the right to open the scroll and claim the earth. He has he has prevailed. He comes forward because He's overcome sin, death, hell, and the grave. He faced sin and He faced death and He conquered it. And He did that on the cross. He's overcome. On the cross, Jesus was victorious. We sing victory in Jesus. Victory comes because He's conquered. No angel in heaven, man on earth, under the earth, having lived, could ever overcome the curse of sin. But Jesus did. He laid down his life and then raised it up again. And because of that, he is the worthy one. He is able. He is the right. It says he's prevailed so as to open the scroll and loose its its seven seals. He's the one who has the right to the lion's banner to David's throne. And he has the right to the earth's deed because he was slain. Verse 6, John says, I looked, and I looked after this announcement, the elders pointing, telling John to stop crying, stop weeping. I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne, and of the four living creatures, he's looking at the throne room, That he's just described for us in chapter 4. And in the midst of the elders, the 24 elders in the thrones that he described before, stood a lamb as though it had been slain. John looks between the throne and he describes for us the lamb's characteristics. He's standing slain. And he describes the scrolls transfer the line of judah now appears as a lamb now i want you to notice this this may seem odd at first there stood a lamb as though he was slain now why does why does john emphasize the standing lamb how can he be standing and slain he was one as though he had been slain that's what he looks like It looked like that he had been slain. The marks of the cross are still upon Christ this very moment in heaven. The marks of the slaughter are still upon him. The wounds of Christ plead for me and for you in, in the court of heaven. He is our advocate at the right hand of the Father. And when we sin or when Satan accuses us, the Father looks to Christ for worthiness, for righteousness. And when he looks to Christ, he sees the marks of the cross still upon Jesus. This is not the pretty blonde little Jesus that you see in the pictures knocking on the door with just a hole in in each hand and in His feet. His visage was marred more than any man. He was unrecognizable. And in, in that horrific picture of the bludgeoning that Christ took upon the cross, God sees the beauty of forgiving our sin. He is a lamb who looked as if he'd been slain, and yet he was standing. He was standing because he was the resurrected lamb. Jesus rose bodily from the dead. He has a body, and that body has the marks on it. But here he stands before John and before us, In conquering victory over death, hell, and the grave, the grave could not hold him. He willingly laid his life down, and he raised it up again. And John describes him with seven horns and seven eyes. It's just symbolism for great power. And the seven eyes, his knowledge extends throughout all of the earth. And after he describes him, his characteristics, verse 7, the Lamb... Moves. Christ moves. And then He came, and He took the scroll out of the right hand of of Him who sat on the throne. Now let that sink in for a minute. Because we we have to see this vision, the vision of the throne room in chapter 4 and chapter 5, we have to see it in a vision to be protected from God's glory lest we be incinerated. We can't even look upon God. No man can look upon God and live. And here is a scene in the Bible where one walks up to God, seated upon his throne, and takes a scroll out of his hand while he's enthroned. If there's any other scene in the Bible that proves the deity of Christ, this one does. Because no created being can do anything or does anything in the presence of God other than fall on their face and worship Him. John felt like a dead man. And here is Christ, the second person of the Trinity, walking up to the throne, taking the scroll from the the right hand. And then everyone begins to worship Him. The last scene... Worthy is the Lamb. The, the Lamb's worship by all of creation starts in verse 8. The throne room bows, a new song is sung, and all of creation's praises sing. seen. Look at verse 8. Now when he'd taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, we've seen those two groups before, fell down before the Lamb, don't miss that they fell down before the lamb they're worshiping the lamb they're worshiping Jesus just like they were worshiping the one who sat upon the throne they're worshiping the lamb each having a harp and full of golden and golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints well, that's interesting Here's the four guardians of God's glory whose primary purpose is to worship God. They join the elders in falling down, worshiping Jesus in the very presence of God the Father. And they worship Him with with harp and bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Prayer rises as worship to God. The prayers of the saints are going to be described later in Revelation Prayer is worship. And here, he's talking about the prayers of the saints. Our faith in prayer, and God's faithfulness in fulfilling, is worship. We trust Him. We trust in His promises. We trust in His timing. We seek things from Him. We look to Him. We pray. We have faith in who He is and what He's promised. And then when God answers and fulfills those, it's worship. He gets the worship that he deserves for his faithfulness and he gets the worship that he deserves in us looking to him. And now all of those prayers are poured out in worship as he, as he gives ultimate answers to them. You, you, why do you pray in Jesus' name? It's not just like the thing that you tack, tack on to the end of your message. You're saying all of the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God. He is the ultimate fulfillment. He is the promise. I'm trusting in Him. God, I'm asking you to answer because of Him, because of His behalf. And all of those prayers that you pray in faith in Jesus' name as Christ will be the ultimate fulfillment Are part of the worship that's coming to the Lamb. They're being recounted and reminded. Your prayer when you trusted in Christ and truly looked at Him, here is the worthy worship to you because you are the one who answers prayer and you will fulfill exactly what you said that you will do. And then, verse 9, and they sang a new song to Christ. It's the song of redemption. You are worthy... To take the scroll and to open its seals. Sing of his worth. They sing of his work. You were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And he describes, they sing about his accomplishment. And you have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. We won't just be kingdom citizens, will reign in the kingdom because of Christ's worth. He did what Adam couldn't do. He's worthy. He did what you couldn't do. He's worthy. What, What was His work? What did He do? He was slain and He redeemed us. And He's redeeming a people that will be in heaven. Those who trust in Christ and those who trust in Him are made kings and priests. They're in an exalted position and will reign on the earth there's a new song but there's even more it's like this spontaneous chorus just rippling out at this magnificent scene verse 11 chorus of angels join in then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne the living creatures, the elders there's a third group worshipping now, speaking The number of these ages was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. That's millions. You can't comprehend that number just like you can't comprehend the national debt. (laughs) trillions of angels. Can you imagine how deafening that would be? Thousands upon thousands upon thousands giving worthy worship to the Lamb who has just taken the scroll from the Father, who just heard the new song sung, the redemption song, about how He redeemed and was slain. Look at verse 12. They were saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. The Sevenfold praise that's there. And now there's another group. Look at verse 13. Every creature, and every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, as such are in the sea, and all that are in them. How many times has he emphasized every all? I heard say, blessing and honor. And glory and power be to Him who sits on the throne to the Lamb forever and ever. And as they said that, the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped Him who lives forever. You see this growing number in a choir like, like rings of praise beginning immediately around the throne, rippling out through the elders and the angelic spectators and finally to the created universe. And all of that's just a prelude to what's going to happen one day. It's a vision of what will take place. And after this, you pray before next Sunday, before I, I get to the first seal, because I, I haven't been able to read The unfurling of the scroll, the first seal. Without weeping. Because as glorious as is the Lamb, it's terrifying. It's this war and wrath that's coming upon the earth. After this scene, the Lamb's judgment, all of creation will bow and acknowledge One day, every creature in heaven, on the earth, under the earth, all of them will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. The Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Some will do that in this beautiful choir. Those who have tasted the gift of salvation, having been cleansed by sin, they'll sing the new song, the redemption song. That'll be the song you'll want to sing. Others will cry in acknowledgement that Jesus was God's Christ. And now their very own praise will condemn them because they rejected him. They will see, they will cry out. And they will be condemned by their own words. You see, the Bible is very clear. You will glorify Jesus. The choice you make is how you will glorify Him. Will you glorify Him as your Savior, the forgiver of your sins? Or will you glorify Him as the Holy Judge who gives every man according to his deeds? You your heads. Thank you, Father. Thank you for sending your Son. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being willing to come. You are worthy. Thank you that you have redeemed us. Thank you that you did that through your blood. Thank you that you were slain. And yet you rose, you're standing in that exalted place in heaven. And oh Lord, I want your kingdom to come. I, I'm tired of this world. Tired of struggles and temptations. One day, that'll all be gone. But Lord, the one thing that holds my heart back is I know that, that when that happens, there will be no hope for people all over this planet. And some of them have yet to hear the name Jesus. Father, I pray for those who have heard the name Jesus here this morning and have heard the gospel clearly, and, and they don't know you. Amen. Um, Pray that they would place their trust in, in you, in you alone, in your work, that they would be added to that number that will sing praise. And I pray that you would help us as a church to manage all of our duties and the important things of life, but place our eyes on the worth of Christ and souls that will either be in this number or outside of that number. Help us, Lord, to throw off the trivial things, the things that are silly, the things that in eternity won't make a hill of beans. And help us try to win people to Jesus so that He may receive the glory that's, that's due Him for His suffering. We pray it in His name. Amen.